Hi, I'm Chris Nessie from the House of EdTech podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Bruce Boys, the author of Cold Comfort, One Man's Struggle to Stop the Illegal Marketing of Powerful Opioid Drugs and Save Lives. He was a top pharmaceutical sales manager who had to become a whistleblower to stop his company from illegally marketing off-label use of prescription drugs. His story is a major part of a recent 60 Minutes episode. It's an amazing story. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. Hey, do you need to teach online? With so many tools and features, it's hard to know which tools are best. ASL Teaching Resources has a free webinar for you. It's called Tips and Tools, Teaching Online Parts 1 and 2. It's on Sunday, August 23rd from 6.15 to 8.30 p.m. EST. The training is interpreted and closed captioned. Go to aslteachingresources.com slash webinar dash sign up. Lots to learn. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Bruce Boys, having worked as a top pharmaceutical sales manager for 24 years, did not intend to become a whistleblower, nor did he fully understand what he was getting himself into when he encouraged his company to stop illegally marketing off-label use of prescription drugs. He ended up losing his job, getting blackballed by the industry, becoming homeless after going through a million dollars in assets and savings, and fearing all of his sacrifices and efforts would lead to nothing being done to the company that contributed to our nation's deadly opioid overdose epidemic. His story serves as inspiration to all future whistleblowers while warning the nation of the dangerous practices of the pharmaceutical and medical industries and the shortcomings of the FDA to adequately protect the American public. Big Pharma all too willingly accepts fines, even ones to the hundreds of millions of dollars, as merely the price of doing business when it it knows it can make tens of billions from illegally marketing its products, asserts boys. This has to stop now before others die. Bruce has recently published his book, Cold Comfort, One Man's Struggle to Stop the Illegal Marketing of Powerful Opioid Drugs and Save Lives. Boys earned a Bachelor of Arts from the, The Ohio State University and in graduate work in geoengineering at Akron Community. Bruce lived in Melbourne and Key West, Florida for a decade, but the Ohio native has, has lived most his life in Columbus, Ohio. Bruce, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hi, folks. Well, I appreciate you joining me, Bruce, and uh, uh, I've, sure. uh, you have an amazing story in your book, uh, Cold Comfort, One Man's Struggle to Stop the Illegal Marketing of Powerful Opioid Drugs and Save Lives. Uh, before we get into it, let's, let's talk about you as a salesman. Seeing your background, you were extremely good at it, and that's probably an understatement. Uh, what got you interested in selling? Um, my father was a dentist, and uh, I had sort of an affinity to the uh, medical side of this world. And um, I, I just thought that I would be good at, at one-to-one selling with folks. And that's how uh, selling in, in pharmaceuticals came about, really. Excellent. The, you know, did, it, did you ever... Back when you were a kid, did you ever have your like your own lemonade stand or something like this, or is it just something that just came about as you got got older? 
as I got older, it's just something that I realized that I probably would be good at. I, I, I had a sense of, of empathy and uh, intuitiveness, which helps as a salesperson. So, you know, with the medical background, it seemed like a natural fit. Excellent. Thanks. You know, so let's, let's keep that in mind. Let's shift gears and uh, focus on your story. Uh, to do that, uh, could you explain what promoting a drug off-label means? Because the audience has to understand that to understand what's going on. Sure. An, on, an off-label uh, prescription can be legal, done by a physician that the physician deems necessary for the patient that one would have that would need a, a product that maybe is not an, an indication for that drug. So the FDA has indications. If you go off label, you're going outside of those indications. And and for a physician, that's legal. For a pharmaceutical company, it is unlawful. So the pharmaceutical company is basically going off label, which means that it is promoting a drug that's that is not in its package insert as a as a prescribed indication. It's an off label indication. Thanks. I appreciate that because that's a big part of understanding what, what's going on here as we get into what, what happens. So uh, it, it's also, I think, important to understand the role, understand what it is and the role of the False Claims Act in terms of health care. Can you spend a little bit of time there? Sure. Uh, the False Claims Act goes back to uh, Abraham Lincoln, actually. Um, it, it's actually described as Lincoln's law. Um, Lincoln, during the Civil War, realized that there was fraud being perpetrated by um, companies that were manufacturing munitions for the Civil War that were defective, that there were soldiers being killed because their weapons didn't work or they they prematurely exploded the, the cannonballs and things like that. So what occurred was that he developed this a law that a individual, a private individual, <clears throat> could wind up uh, filing a case against those manufacturers that were perpetrating the fraud, which is the False Claims Act. Gotcha. The, uh, you know, so in looking at this, so it's not legal for a pharmaceutical company to promote and sell drugs off-label, like you said. But why Correct. would they want? Why would they do that? I mean, what's there to gain? Well, if you take a a product that's, for example, that has a narrow indication, and and I'm describing a maybe an orphan drug that it, what Provigil would be, um, that has a narrow indication for narcolepsy, excessive daytime sleepiness associated with narcolepsy. There's only about 130,000 patients in the country that are diagnosed with narcolepsy. So it's a small market. Uh, within the first year, you've pretty much saturated that market with a new product taking about 80% of the market. So where do you go from there with that kind of drug? Well, the next year you go to an off-label indication. So the, the company promoted the, the next year for those kind of products to, to for example, narcolepsy, MS fatigue. Um, and, and to go touch on Actique, Actique is the fentanyl product that they promoted off-label. It was originally indicated for uh, cancer patients that were terminal. So what they did is promote it for low back pain or migraine patients. And they they actually would move products into a larger market 
and they would basically make their own market and create a billion dollar product. Wow. The, uh, and you know, one of the things that I, I'd like to kind of back up to, cause you mentioned the, uh, the products that, uh, this, uh, this whole situation centers around, um, at, Atik and fentanyl is one of them. And can you, can you kind of, let's kind of go back and talk about what they were designed for and what they are for. Sure. And can you also mention the idea of the lollipop? <clears throat> sure. Um, the company originally had three drugs that the indications of the drugs and the drugs were gabatril, which was indicated for epilepsy. Um, the, the, Provigil that was indicated for excessive daytime sleepiness associated with narcolepsy. And Actique was indicated for breakthrough cancer pain with the cancer pain being a chronic pain for uh, cancer patients that were terminally ill. And so what they did is that they, they then promoted those three drugs off-label. So Gabatril, they went to and an off-label indication of anxiety for provigil. They went off-label for an indication in, in MS fatigue, uh, also in uh, excessive daytime sleepiness associated with um, patients that were taking antidepressants. So it was an augmentation with their antidepressant therapy. And with Actique, they went into low back pain and also migraine pain. So one of the drugs is it, they actually have it as a as a lollipop, which I thought was interesting that they called it that. But it's actually meant to be sucked on and put right against like the gums or something to really fast deliver that pain med. And you could see how someone could get addicted to that, especially if it wasn't designed for what their problem was. Well, and the, right, and 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 Stephen, the the issue with that is that you know you're you're moving to you know, cancer patients that are terminally ill are are probably on an opioid drug to begin with, or they were, they were on morphine before, and morphine failed. So the, the breakthrough pain kept persisting. They moved them to fentanyl. All right. With with what you've got what you've got with going off label and going into low back pain or going into migraine patients. You're really going into an area where it's occasional use. It's not chronic pain. It's acute pain. And they may be patients that are drug naive. A migraine patient may not have taken an opioid before. And so when you, when you give fentanyl, which is 100 times more potent than morphine, 50, more, 50 times more potent than heroin, you're, you're going to have problems of addiction, you're going to have problems with overdose if you're not careful. And so that's that's the, the real problem with the lollipop and what they were trying to do in promoting Actique off-label. Gotcha. Thank you. The uh, That's scary stuff, man. The, uh, it, yes. Um, you know, now, now let's, let's get into what uh, becomes a big part of what happens um, from here on out. You, you realize that what was going on was not what should be happening, and uh, – could you talk a little bit about what feelings you were having to deal with that eventually led you to report the company you worked for? Sure. Um, you know, Stephen, it was like uh, when this first started, I was at a national meeting. I was running my own sales team. And what I noticed is that my own folks were coming to me saying, you know, this other sales team got all this bonus money. 
and I, and I'm gone and how, how this occurred. And it was that the manager was promoting off label of one of the drugs off label. And I, and I thought what it was, was that it was a rug manager and he was promoting off label. And, you know, if I reported to the company and, and I'd save my job, I'd save my, my people, my group's jobs and the company's jobs because it was unlawful. I felt like it was unlawful and, and the wrong thing to do. And, then I realized what was going on was that I, as I went up the chain of command, it was from the very top down. That's what they wanted to do is to promote all their drugs off label. And I just couldn't deal with that. And I, I just felt like this is just a bridge too far for me. So re, on a recent 60 minutes uh, TV show segment, they actually reference the, the, this whole situation. And a big part of it was interviewing the, uh, the, the agent who was, uh, listening in on the conversations because what you had to do was you had to wear a wire, right? Correct. Yes. Could you explain what happened? Um, sure. Um, what happened with that, Stephen, is, is that uh, when you first talk to uh, federal agents and you turn over documentation that you think that's going to help prove a case of fraud, uh, they, they ask, would you wear a wire because uh, they want to prosecute the company criminally? And so, you know, and I said yes, and I, I got into it and, and figured that you know I'm already this far. It's got to help the case, so I'll wear the wire. And and it, it was a it was a weird experience. I mean, it was like to be wired up, and you know the mic goes in the clavicle, you know, up by your shoulder, and it's wired down on on the side and goes into a pocket. And 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 is and it's just. And, you, and the whole joke by the federal agents was that, oh, you want to have you speak to your caller. So here's the targeted person, and you'd want to have them speak to the caller. And, you know, it's almost one of those things where you, you start thinking of the, all the movies you see with things right. like that, you know. Um, but but that's, that's how they get the evidence, and that's how, you know, they get a, a broader spectrum of what's going on with the company and and what is being said and how things are being done. By the time that starts happening, you have to really be in a kind of a surreal world, I would think. Oh, it was, it was absolutely, you know, I'm walking down the hall and the battery goes in your pocket and all of a sudden, I, and when I get nervous, I put my hands in my pocket. It's just a habit. And I go to put my hands in a pocket and the battery's not there. And I'm thinking, where is the battery? And all of a sudden coming the other way is the senior vice president of the company. And I'm thinking, where's the battery? He's walking towards me. It was outside of my pocket and it was swinging around my pant leg. Wow. Okay. And I'm thinking, I'm dead. He <laughs> sees the battery, right? <laughs> well, he happened not see the battery because it's behind my knee. I grabbed it, threw it back in my pocket and said, hi, how you doing, Bob? <laughs> Wow. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. I hear a little uh, Mission Impossible music playing in the background. <laughs> yes. Wow. You you kind of developed a um pretty uh unique connection then with the authorities who you're working with and you you kind of um have to stay in contact with them. Actually, um Greg that was on the 60 minute show that did the interview last Sunday. He and I still communicate back and forth. So we, we still keep in touch. And I actually sent him a message saying, you know, great interview. 
it was a great interview. Nice. He had he has he has a nice uh, voice to it, and he 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 has good word usage as far as his job, and and so yeah, it was an, and it was nicely done. So I had to send him a message. That's awesome. I can I can imagine the uh, you know it's it's interesting because he in that segment he tells a story about when. Uh, yeah, that they were listening in on these conversations. And uh, one of the things that uh, happens is that when word kind of gets out that there's possibility that there are people listening to what's going on, that how fast the place clears out. And I thought that was. Oh, it was, it, it was the, the scenes interesting because he and I have talked about that. So his, so I come back on Friday. It's the end of the week. We, I had, I had taped everybody Monday through Friday. So I'd worked all week, not only as an as a person employed by Cephalon, but I worked all week with with the OCI folks and the federal agents, and also them talking to Justice Department lawyers to coordinate, um, you know, the 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 wiring that was going on to collect evidence. And he just comes up to me, and I and I and I would go in in the room early early morning before breakfast to get wired up or to get debriefed and take the wire off uh, because I was a number. And so they, they tell the number and you basically just, here's the number so-and-so of case so-and-so da, 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 and they, they take the wire off and you have to do it in a legal process to be a, acceptable within court. Right. So, so we get done and he turns around to me and goes, you need to take a walk. And with that, he, he goes into the safe in the room and there's three agents and he's pulling all the badges and the guns out. And I'm thinking, whoa, what is this, <laughs> right? It's like, and he goes, and, and Greg goes, no, you need to take a walk. Just get out of here, take a walk. We don't want you anywhere around the hotel because we're going we're gonna to badge, basically term used, we're going to badge some of the employees and some of the managers. And so I go and walk out, and I realize that it's, it's a desert, it's out in Vegas. It's a desert. There's no sidewalk. <laughs> so I walk out and I walk back and I just go down to the bar. And of all people come and sit with me, it's the CEO, Frank Baldino, comes down and sits with me. Wow. And they're busting everybody at that time. And they're all, this is where Greg says on 60 Minutes, they're all running around. Well, he gets that view from them. They're all running around. And then I see them from the lobby and they're all running around all over the place. And who sits down with me is Frank Baldino the CEO. And so the, 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 the people know that somebody wore a wire and they got busted by the FDA and they're trying to get Frank away from me to go to a meeting room to strategize what they're going to do and what they're going to say to everybody at the end of the meeting. And Frank, come on, let's go. No, I'm sitting with Bruce he, and I like Bruce and I'm going to sit with Bruce. Little did Frank know at the time that I was the one wearing the wire. Wow. Wow. The, you know, one of the things that, uh, and, it, and it is interesting when you, when you hear the, um, the agent Greg tell his, telling his story on that, uh, that episode that, uh, you know, one of the things he talked about was how blatant the, they thought it was going to be more, you know, covert type, uh, situation with the instructions to do all this off, off label marketing. And instead it was all out there in the world um, just, that's just what everybody was talking about. It, and can you talk about that just a little bit? Oh, sure. Um, <clears throat> it was so upfront that, <clears throat> and, and in fact, 
I could say that it's a brilliant plan because what they were going to do is that they were going to do off-label 24-7 as though it was normal. That was the plan. Wow. So they told the reps, oh, no, no, this is legal. This is what we're supposed to do. This is our First Amendment right. We can leave that and disseminate that information. When no, they cannot. And what they did is that they wound up doing all the products off-label, which the reps just assumed that this was a normal you know, business practice. And it was not. So Gabitrol was off-label, Provigil was off-label, Actique was off-label. They were all off-label. And in fact, the modus operandi or how they did the off-label, how they, they promoted it, it was the same for all them. So it wasn't like you were saying the same kind of the terms, medical terms, obviously, between Gabitrol and Provigil and Actique, right? They were different terms, right? Different medical conditions, right? right. But it was the same motive that, or the same process that they were using to promote off-label. That's so wild. I it, Just listening to it, it's just amazing that something that they know they're not supposed to be doing is just so out there in the open and uh, as if it's just all, everything's fine. Uh, well, and I, and I think, Steve, Stephen, the other issue with that is that I, I think that if you want to look at what can be done and, and to move forward with that, you know, you really can't, you really have to look at what do we change? What do we, do we change the FDA and how they approach this? Do we change the, the pharmaceutical industry? Because really it was like, it was years and years and years to be caught. The company knew that even if somebody had a case against them, it would take them years to be caught. The company eventually after, after two cases had sold sold their company for $7 billion. Over the period of time, they had made $30 billion in this period of time of the two cases. You know, and if you look at the loss involved to the economic cost, it's uh, in the opioid epidemic, it's over $500 billion lost in in the economy, uh, over 400,000 patients have overdosed in the U.S. since 1996 in the U.S. on opioids. So so it, it is a drop in the bucket for the pharmaceutical industries b- because they make so much money off this. And but the cost to the patients and 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 the family members are tremendous. And people just don't talk about that. And that's part of the educational process, right? To get the book out for those reasons, to help the families and um, of, the, of, of loved ones lost and to help those patients that are struggling. Very much so. Cause I mean, it's, you know, the, it's without knowing, obviously, you know, that you can't, how can things change that all this is going on, especially with, you know, if a, companies acting in the way in which um, we can do this and even if we get caught uh, we still got our money and uh, what they're going right. to charge us is not going to be that bad so that's which is crazy but <laughs> by the way um, so so just kind of put things in perspective here we're talking about this is early 2000s and then when the first case happens and the have a, and then it comes again in uh, what finishes up around 2017. Correct. Um, the, I filed in 2004. I had worked with the government in 2003. Um, the first case was wrapping up uh, settlement in 2008, and, and we started the second case in 2008 as well. The second case then finished up in 2017. 
Wow. And and what I'd like you to talk about here is that because you end up having some serious things happen to you as a result of um, being part of this. And um, so participating with authorities really kind of turned your life upside down. Could you talk about that? Well, I, as you mentioned in the intro, Stephen, I was already net worth the house and the investments over a million dollars. And, and when I stepped up to do this, what I thought was that, oh, I'm going to fall a little bit. I'll just have to pick myself up and I'll get another job and I'll just go on with my career. And that's not what happened. What happened is that I wound up losing everything. I I lost my job, my career, my house, my cars, Uh, kids had to drop out of school. It was just one thing after another. And, you know, eventually I had a bicycle that I could ride and I rode the bicycle to Kinko's to get a, to use a computer to do my correspondence with, you know, who I was working with in the government. So it, it was, it was, a, and, and basically all I did was just flip hamburgers in the summer for $10 an hour. It was pretty devastating. And then when I was looking for a job in the industry, I got blackballed. So, um, it, it's a, the retaliation, you know, is, is pretty horrible. So how did you, how did you keep your focus? I mean, how did you, I mean, how did you, uh, know that there's got to be a better day? Well, I, th- I think in a lot of ways, I'm, 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 as an individual, I'm sort of a grateful heart. And so that, you know, my cup is always, you know, it's past half full all the time. And so I have a positive attitude in life. And, and I think, you know, you, you've, you know, you feel good about you're doing the right thing. And, you know, you, you have to keep the faith of doing the right thing and, you know, that things will work out. Uh, and it may take a little longer because, you know, the justice system is a little slow sometimes. And so you just have to feel like, you know, that, that, that it's going to work out in, in a positive way. And, the company will be stopped doing what they're doing because who, who was going to, who was going to take care of those folks that were going to, that, that didn't know. And Ethel took fentanyl or an, uh, Actique as a lollipop for a migraine and she overdosed, you know, no one knew that. No one knew what was going on. So that's why. Gotcha. The, uh, in, Bruce, what, your book is Cold Comfort, One Man's Struggle to Stop the Illegal Marketing of Powerful Opioid Drugs and Save Lives. Why should someone read it? I, 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 it would be a great book for somebody that is interested in, like, what happened in the opioid crisis? How did it start? Also, I think it would be great for anybody that would be interested in what, what's the inside look of a whistleblower? What does it look like? What do you have at risk? What do you want to be careful of? Um, as as vice to to whistleblowers that are thinking about it, you you want to one make sure you get a key tem lawyer. The, that's the law involved, um, and that would be helpful for them. They want to also be able to keep their uh, finances together, and then look for a job after the evidence is is given to the government. So there's a lot of there's a lot of inside looks to that, and I think it'd be helpful for people. Uh, that be interested in, or, in the whistleblowing aspect or the opioid crisis by itself. And I got to tell you, this is you know one of the things just alone that your book helps bring to light is 
where this opioid crisis comes from, <laughs> you know, just a big part of it right there was that, that marketing and so forth. And I think that's, uh, any thoughts about that? Well, the, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the companies need to be held accountable for the, the off-label marketing that's illegal. And, and I think one of the things that helped was the 60 minute show where, uh, they had, um, INSIS executive that was arrested and is in federal prison now. And that what happened in January, 2020. And I, and I think that that's, that is the point that you need where you can go in and say, Hey, you're promoting a schedule two drug off label and you're going to overdose and kill people. And, and that's a good thing. That's what it's all about. That's now, as far as, helping people after that and being proactive with patient advocacy groups. You know, there's the American Association for the Treatment of Opioid Dependence. Uh, there's also the Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. Um, all those type things, all those type of groups, we're tr I'm trying to make sure that that gets out as information, as auxiliary information for uh, patient advocacy. Excellent. <clears throat> Excellent. And if someone wants to learn more, where can they get a copy of your book and uh, connect with you? Where would you send them? Uh, you could go to my website and it's bruceboyce.com and that's spelled B-O-I-S-E. Excellent. And I'll make sure that's in my show notes. So uh, the, the, the links will be there as well as uh, a link to that 60 minutes episode and a, and a link to your book. So good stuff. We, you know, last couple questions here, uh, Bruce, and uh, just kind of um, as we finish up, you know, one of the things I want to kind of come back to is, you know, a lot of times uh, in the world of work and such, we get in a little bit, of, we just get overwhelmed. And uh, can, what, what advice would you give to somebody who gets overwhelmed, got too many things going on and uh, looking like it, uh, there's no, uh, no silver lining to the clouds or no uh, sun coming out? But just remember that in, in human existence, most of us seem, we feel like that we're going through this the first time, don't we? And it's really not. Mm -hmm. That there's been worse times and there, there's been more, much more difficulty in the times people have had their lives. And so, you know, there's always, it's always, and it doesn't last, does it? And so... Yes, it's difficult. Yes, you can get through that. And tomorrow's a better day. I love that. Thank you so much. You know, and the last question I have for you, Bruce, goes like this. You know, my audience is comprised of educators, teachers, building administrators, so forth, and, and all kinds of educators uh, with different role, roles. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if you had the chance to say thank you? Oh my gosh, I do. Uh, Stephen, it, it was a, a physical education teacher when I was in uh, middle school. And uh, he was in our locker room and we were getting ready to go out on the gym and just talking. And they made an announcement in the school where uh, President Kennedy had been assassinated. And the gym teacher, he's a black man, and he put his head in his head 
and held it and just was seemed lost and really devastated. He was really upset. And it just hit me, okay, that what a moment that happened. And he stood up and he said, we have to go forward. We have to move forward. And this is how we handle things like this. And it wasn't about physical education. It wasn't about anything other than just character. It was just unbelievable character, I thought. And that had lasted me all my life, how how important that was to hold on to that, that here's this man that had seen he'd lost everything and stood up and said, you know, duty bound, this is what we need to do. And we're going to do this and it's going to get better. And, and it was just, it's just, a, it just really hit me that it was just an amazing thing. And I don't think he realized how impactful that was to all the kids and all of us when he did what he did. That's cool. Bruce, thank you so much for talking with me today. You have an incredible story and an amazing internal drive that kept you focused on doing right. You know, thank you for staying the course and sharing your story with us today. Uh, the name of Bruce's book is Cold Comfort, One Man's Struggle to Stop the Illegal Marketing of Powerful Opioid Drugs and Save Lives. You know, Bruce, wishing you the best in all that you do. Well, thank you much. It was a pleasure talking to you, Steve. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.